Please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 20. If you're using the church Bible, that's going to be found on page 72. This morning we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, which is part of a larger series on the book of Exodus. And that larger context is fundamentally important. Uh, Israel is not told, if you live this way, as I describe in the Ten Commandments, eventually you may earn the right to be saved. Rather, when things are totally uh, at the worst they can possibly be, when Israel is enslaved to a genocidal dictator with no hope of freedom or salvation, God has compassion and out of sheer grace comes down and rescues Israel and brings Israel to himself and enters a covenant relationship with Israel. And then, in that context, after he's already saved them by grace, he says, here's how you should live as my people. They're saved by grace, and then they live by grace in response. We're now coming to the sixth commandment. It's verse uh, 13 of Exodus 20 in what is oftentimes called the second table of the law. That is to say, the part of the Ten Commandments that focuses on our duties towards our others. Although our duties towards God and towards neighbor are always interrelated. I'm going to read the whole of Exodus uh, 21 through 17, and then we'll focus on verse 13. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Uh, three points that I want to make this morning. First is that God made humans in his image. Second, don't attack God's image. Instead, third, care for God's image. 
God made humans in his image. Don't attack God's image. Care for God's image. First, God made humans in his image. God made humans in his image. The commandment we're focusing on here, you shall not murder, like the next two commandments, uh, is short. And in Hebrew, it's even shorter, just two words, never murder. The commands up till now have had some additional instructions, giving reasons why you should obey these commands, or instructions or explanations of how to keep the commands. But these last five commands simply name five things we ought not do. But these commands don't come to us in a vacuum. They're part of the larger context of Scripture. Scripture gives us a framework for making sense of these commands. To make sense of the sixth command in particular, we need to go back. uh, Oh, sorry. um, A couple weeks ago, I argued that all of the Ten Commandments, but we see it especially on the Sabbath command, reflect God's own character and are grounded in creation. And in the case of the sixth commandment in particular, we need to go back to Genesis 1 and see what it says about humans, that God made humans in his image. On the sixth day, after God formed a formless world into the sky and the earth and the sea, and he filled it with all kinds of fish and birds and beasts, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. This idea that God created humans in his image is absolutely revolutionary. It has literally transformed our world. In the ancient world, the idea that a human might be the image of God wasn't totally foreign. So Egyptians and Babylonians alike claimed that their kings were the image of God on earth. After all, just look at them. They're rich beyond belief. They have the power of life and death over their citizens. They live in luxury and majesty. They have more power than any other living person I mean, some of the pharaohs maybe had more power than any other human ever has in human history. What on earth could be more like a god? But that's not what Israel claimed. Genesis 1 says every single human being, from the poorest, weakest slave to the richest, most powerful king, men and women, young and old, all without distinction, are made in God's image. And then a little later in Genesis 9, uh, after the flood, God makes clear the ethical significance that humans are made in his image. Noah and his descendants are told they can kill and eat animals, but whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The Bible roots the prohibition on killing in the fact that humans are made in God's image. Because God made humans in his image, humans have a right to life and a value that sets humans apart from animals. This revolutionary idea that God made all humans in his image provides the grounds, both analytically and historically, for uh, for universal human rights more generally. Uh, Analytically, that is to say, uh, philosophically, it provides the grounds. The secular Israeli historian Yuval Noah Harari argues 
Most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story we've invented. They are not an objective reality. There's not a biological fact about Homo sapiens. The only place you find rights is in the stories we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. What's he arguing? He's saying, what gives humans unique dignity or rights? Well, we share 40% of our DNA with bananas, 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. There doesn't seem to be anything in our biology that grants us unique rights. But the biblical claim isn't about biological facts. Rather, human value is grounded in our relationship to God. Perhaps an illustration will clarify, uh, and I picked this illustration with Leslie in mind, but I don't see her here today, so hopefully it'll work for others. Imagine next winter you go to see Taylor Swift up at the stadium in Vancouver, BC. And when you get home, uh, Lost and Found reaches out to you and lets you know you left your jacket there. Okay, between Vancouver traffic and the hassle of parking downtown, you might just say to them, donate it. Uh, you know, I'm not going to come pick it up. Now imagine Lost and Found sends out an email to everyone that says Taylor Swift left her jacket here. But she's already left the next city, so she said auction it off for charity. Uh, and there'll be an auction tomorrow on the front steps of the stadium. You can imagine it would be gridlock from White Rock to downtown, parking would be a nightmare, and the jacket would probably sell for thousands of dollars. What's the difference? It might be the same exact jacket, but one has a specific relationship to a specific person. And that's what the Bible claims about human beings. It's not that there's certain threads in us, our DNA or something like that, that makes us uniquely valuable, but rather we have a specific relationship to a specific person. We are made in the image of God. So it's not our biology that makes us more valuable than bananas or chimpanzees. It's our relationship to the God who made us in his image and loves us. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari does get some things right, though. There is an important connection between belief in God and human rights. And that connection is rooted in a story. But it's not a story that was invented and spread over the last centuries. Rather, the story that accounts for human rights is the gift of the Jews through the church to the world. Uh, as one scholar puts it, human equality, human rights, and humanism can trace their sources back to the biblical doctrine of the image of God. And the story wasn't invented a few centuries ago, but rather has taken thousands of years to transform our world. If we step back for a moment to the first century, the situation the early church found itself in when it first started proclaiming this truth that all humans are made in the image of God, here's what we find. Oxford historian Larry Seidentop says, at the core of ancient thinking, we have found the assumption of natural inequality. In the domestic sphere, in the public life, or when contemplating the cosmos, Greek and Romans did not see anything like a level playing field. Rather, they instinctively saw a hierarchy or a pyramid. So Plato writes, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. Justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. Aristotle, from the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. The Twelve Tables, the earliest Roman legal code from 450 BC, permitted a father to expose any female infant 
and any deformed or weak male infant. Harari's right. The God story and the equality story stand or fall together. Whether you're a Christian or not, if you feel that life is sacred, that every human possesses an inviolable dignity and equality, and that no one deserves to be trampled down simply because they're smaller or weaker or poorer, you are standing on particularly biblical foundations. It's where the idea comes from. How did that idea or that story spread? Primarily as Christians lived out the ethic of life founded on the image of God in community, committed to honoring God's image in their neighbors, lived out, and they lived out this ethic of life, oftentimes at great cost to themselves. And then ultimately through the life of the church, this idea of universal human rights and dignity spread throughout the Western world. Okay, that's the big, broad context. Let's turn back to the sixth commandment. What does it teach? Negatively, don't attack God's image. Don't attack God's image. What exactly does the sixth commandment forbid? Uh, The older King James said, thou shalt not kill, but that was too broad because there are forms of killing allowed in the Bible, and there is a more general Hebrew term that refers to all kinds of killing. The word used here is more narrow and focused. But our modern translation, you shall not murder, is probably a bit too narrow. Uh, In many legal systems, intention or premeditation are required to distinguish murder from other forms of unlawful homicide. That is to say, this command forbids flying into a rage and punching someone in a bar and it kills them. Even though that's not premeditated murder in our technical legal sense, it's nevertheless forbidden. So things like endangerment, manslaughter are also considered violations of the Sixth Commandment. What counts as unlawful homicide in Israel's point of view or the biblical point of view? Simply this, we don't have the authority to kill. Only God does. All humans are made in God's image by God and therefore have a right to life. Only God can give life. Only God gives life and therefore only God has the right to take life away. That gets us to the heart of unlawful life-taking. Attacking God's image, taking a life, is stealing from God. This simple command is a, notice it's a blanket statement. There's not a bunch of exceptions or qualifications, and that just seems obvious to us, and yet ancient law codes like the Code of Hammurabi distinguish between penalties for manslaughter if the victim is a free man or a slave. If a free man dies because of manslaughter, then the person who caused it to happen is put to death. But if a slave dies because of manslaughter, the person who caused it to happen has to pay a fine. There's an implicit distinction between the value of one life and another. Likewise, as we saw just a moment ago, Roman law provided different protections for healthy male infants as opposed to female malformed or weak infants. That There's different categories of human life. In fact, uh, the modern world seems to be going the same way. The 19th century philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche despised Christianity for subverting natural selection and evolution by taking the part of all the weak, the low, and the botched. But these, these, these basic assumptions shape how Christians think about some of the most difficult ethical issues of our day, that Humans are made in God's image. We don't have the right to take life. That all humans without distinction have that right. So this shapes how we think about issues such as abortion, euthanasia, and suicide. 
the lives of our fetuses, our parents, even our own lives, ultimately don't belong to us, but to God, whose image they bear. Of course, there is a place for nuanced thinking about difficult cases. I'm not denying that. But in general, Christians oppose abortion, euthanasia, and suicide because each robs God and attacks his image. This basic instinct should also lead us to resist a culture of violence, uh, whether it's our media celebrating simulated killing to increasingly violent rhetoric in our politics uh, to, sorry, but some aspects of gun culture that seems to say, I have more power because I have more guns, violent protests, revolts, uh, deaths of despair, whatever, wherever you look around us, there's increasingly uh, violent culture. Now, in a congregation this size, I'm not so naive as to think that there's not someone present who has violated the most explicit sense of each of these commandments. And so maybe you are the person here who has killed someone and never confessed it. Uh, that's something to deal with. But in Jesus' teaching that we read earlier in the service, he shows us that violence and murder ultimately begin in the heart and that all of us, each one of us has the heart problems that ultimately lead to murder. We need to get to the root issues of anger and self-interest. Uh, imagine some students arguing in a classroom, and one says to the other one, if the teacher weren't here right now, I'd clobber you. Okay? It's good the teacher's there, that the external circumstances restrain one student from clobbering the other, but there's something disordered in that student that needs corrected. They need to be trained, this isn't the appropriate way to interact with your classmates, this isn't an appropriate way to handle anger, that sort of thing. But Jesus is saying basically we're all in that situation. External circumstances and God's good grace may have kept us from committing murder, but we have the same disordered hearts that in the right circumstance could lead to murder. Generally, the motive for murder is wanting to get rid of someone who is in some way or another an obstacle to what I want. Jesus' point is this. Most of us have never gone so far as murder, but is that because our hearts are pure? Certainly not. We've been restrained by external circumstances, but we all know what it's like when someone else is an obstacle to what we want, and we've all responded by attacking God's image in that other person with our thoughts or our words or even our deeds. We use violent words and actions to get our way, to assert ourselves over others. And that's what Nietzsche celebrated, the will to power. This is what we ought to do. But it's certainly not what Christ says. Picking up on Jesus' focus on anger in the heart, the Heidelberg Catechism asks, does this commandment refer only to killing? And answers, by forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness. In God's sight, all such are murder. The simple command is calling us to root out all the attitudes and behaviors, envy, hatred, anger, vindictiveness, the words and actions that attack the image of God in others and indeed in ourselves. But as we've been seeing throughout the series, each negative command forbidding something implies a positive duty that we are obligated to fulfill. And so if we recognize that universal human rights are grounded in the fact that human beings are made in God's image, then it entails both that we should not attack God's image in others, but also 
that we should care for God's image. Care for God's image. That's the third part or the third point I want to make. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism continues. Is it enough that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way as this? Uh, thoughts, words, deeds. And answers, no. By condemning envy, hatred, and anger, God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. To be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly to them. To protect them from as much harm as we can. To do good even to our enemies. By forbidding murder, condemning, uh, condemning anger and hatred, God is calling us to love our neighbors, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly. We respect God's image not only by not attacking it, but by caring for it. And this is how the Christian story of universal human rights and dignity changed the world. Early Christians boycotted the gladiatorial games where people died for entertainment. And as a result, they were viewed with skepticism as disloyal to the state that sponsored those games. But then in the early 5th century, a Christian monk named Telemachus entered the arena and stood between the gladiators on the two sides trying to stop them from killing each other. And the crowd that came to see blood and death was angered and actually stoned Telemachus to death. But then the Christian emperor Honorius heard the story of Telemachus' death, and finally in the early 5th century, 401, 402, outlawed the gladiatorial games throughout the Roman Empire. The historian William Lecky says that there is scarcely any reform so important in the moral history of mankind as the suppression of the gladiatorial games, a feat that must be almost exclusively ascribed to the Christian church. St. Telemachus' sacrifice changed hearts. He gave his own life caring for the image of God in others, and ultimately it transformed the world. Likewise, early Christians rejected abortion. Uh, as early as the second century, theologian Athenagoras wrote, we say that women who use drugs to bring on an abortion have committed murder and will have to account to God for the abortion. We regard the very fetus in the womb as a created being and therefore an object of God's care, and we do not expose infants because those who expose them are chargeable with child murder. Okay, of course, if you find yourself in one of these situations, there is God's grace for you, even in these sorts of circumstances. But in the early church, it wasn't just a negative uh, condemnation of abortion and child exposure, but rather St. Macrina, for example, a fourth century nun, would tour the dumps around her city, rescuing exposed infants and adopting them into her community. And other early Christians did the same. In fact, the reason that the Roman Empire ultimately became Christian, a large part of it, is because the Romans kept exposing female infants. And so in some cities, it was 140 males to 100 females. They're just, the, the fertility rate in Rome was so low. And yet early Christians adopted these exposed young girls. And they also honored women as equal to men. And so the fertility rate, the Christians literally just outgrew the Roman Empire eventually. These aren't isolated examples. Early Christians were pioneers in providing public health care for all. One scholar summarizes, St. Ephraim the Syrian, when the city of Edessa was ravaged by plague, established hospitals open to all who were afflicted. St. Basil the Great, uh, Macrina's brother, founded a hospital in Cappadocia with a ward set aside for the care of lepers who he did not disdain to nurse with his own hands. St. Benedict of Nursia opened a free infirmary in Mont Cassino and made care of the sick a paramount duty of his monks. 
In Rome, the Christian noblewoman and scholar St. Fab Fabiola established the first public hospital in Western Europe, and despite her wealth and position, often ventured out into the streets personally to seek out those who needed care. St. John Chrysostom, while patriarch of Constantinople, used his influence to fund several such institutions in that city. The way that this story, that all humans were made in God's image, was spread was not simply through words, but through the actions of the early church. But in keeping the sixth commandment by sacrificially caring for God's image, the early church was simply following the example of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ himself. The Prince of Heaven, God's very image, came into the world to establish the kingdom of God. But he didn't establish his kingdom by killing. He didn't use violence to extend his rule throughout the earth. Although Jesus had all the armies of heaven at his command and justice on his side, how did he establish his kingdom? Not by killing, but by being killed. Although it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen because it was such an awful and inhumane death, Romans thought nothing of crucifying non-Romans. In fact, it showed Rome's power. They could strip you of your very humanity. And who could question the power of a kingdom like that? But Christ allowed himself to be killed even in this most excruciating way, to be murdered in the most horrible way possible. Why? Why? To care for God's image. Jesus loved his Father and so gives himself to rescue us, you and I who are made in God's image. He loves the Father whose image we bear, and so therefore he gives himself to rescue us as a way to honor his Father. Jesus loves his Father, gives himself to rescue us who are made in God's image, but whose hearts harbor anger and hatred and murder. The cross shows us two things. It shows us two things. It shows us our true character, what rebellious humans are like. This is what we do when a perfect man presents himself, perfectly loving and kind and generous and humble. When he gets in our way, we crucify him. But it also shows us how much God loves humanity, how much he loves those who bear his image. Even though we try to destroy him, even though we've rejected him, even though we attack his image in others, he gives himself in Christ Jesus to bring us back to himself. God made humans in his image. So every human has specific sets of rights and duties. Don't attack God's image. Care for God's image. We fail on both accounts. In our anger, we attack God's image in our thoughts, words, and deeds. And we fail to care for God's image as we ought to. We take life. But as we heard from Ephesians 2, God is in the business of giving life to the dead. When Christ was murdered, God raised him to a new and glorious life. And God offers spiritual life now and resurrection life forevermore to all who are united to Christ by faith. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, we must confess that we value life too lightly. You have given us life, you have given us your image, and yet we are somewhat flippant towards your image in ourselves, in others. 
With our thoughts and our words and our actions, we attack your image and we fail to care for those who bear your image as we ought to. We value life too lightly. And yet your love for us is so deep beyond comprehension that you gave yourself to rescue us, to restore your image in us through Christ Jesus as we are conformed to his image. For those, Lord, who have perhaps never been resurrected uh, or never experienced this sort of resurrected spiritual life, they've never had faith in Christ Jesus, by your Holy Spirit even now be at work in their life, drawing them to yourself. For those of us who confess that we hold Christ as our Lord, who believe that you made all humans in your image, let us be steadfast in our commitment to life, to caring for your image. Let us not use violent words or thoughts or actions towards others to get our way. Let us be restrained and self-sacrificing in our attitude. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.